excited to celebrate the birth of Jesus with you uh, today, the Advent. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 2. So if you have a Bible, if you please open up, that'd be great. Uh, the last few weeks, we've been in an Advent series focusing on celebrating and waiting, celebrating the arrival of Jesus and yearning for his second coming. So it's the celebration of Jesus's birth, but the yearning for his second arrival because he's coming back. Amen. Amen. That's right. You caught on. Okay, so for some of us, uh, the tension of waiting is not really a Christmassy topic, though, uh, a Christmassy sermon topic. But listen, uh, waiting on the Lord, it, it often becomes a, a cliche phrase that we just kind of throw around. Uh, and uh, frankly, it's an easy way to break up with somebody if you really want to give yourself a Christmas gift uh, on Christmas Eve. You can just go up to him and lay, say, you know, it's, it's not you. I'm just waiting on the Lord, and it's just me and the Lord. So good luck with that uh, tonight, if that's going to be something you want to do. Uh, but some of you might say, like, come on, Graham, give me the, give me the baby Jesus sermon, and, and let's get out of here. But listen, everything significant that God does in your life and in the world involves long stretches of waiting. Everything that he, he does involves long stretches of waiting, and Advent means arrival. So that means that there has to be waiting before the arrival, right? Right? Okay, great. So there's a pre-arrival, meaning there is waiting involved. And you and I are in a strange place where Jesus has come. He's brought peace on earth to, to, to the souls of man through his death, burial, and resurrection, right? But he's also coming back. So we're already there, but not yet there and if you've heard it once, you've heard it a million times here at Fort Bible Church. We believe that you're crafted, you're made. Your soul is made by God to, to be satisfied by him and you will be restless. You'll be restless until you find your rest in him. And that's what we're gonna talk about today in Matthew 2. When I was 16, I got my first job as a waiter, a waiter at the finest American uh, family-style serving-size food establishment on the planet. P.F. Chang's and Grapevine. Now, I don't know if you've ever um, waited tables before, but there's really only one reason why you wait tables, and that's for tips. Um, I hate to burst your bubble on your favorite uh, Charleston's waiter or waitress that you love and that's so kind to you, but nobody, nobody in the world truly enjoys serving you your fifth cup of ranch. No one really does it. It's not out of the goodness of their hearts that they're, they're doing this. Because, and because I was the rookie of the bunch at, uh, at P.F. Chang's, I often had to close the restaurant at 10 p.m. And I literally waited on uh, people. And sometimes it was worth it, and sometimes it, it wasn't. Well, one night, a couple came into the restaurant uh, on a Saturday night at 9.50 p.m. They walked into the doors knowing it closed at 10, at 9.50 p.m. And the other servers looked at me and said, you're up, Rook. So I said, okay, great. So I walk up to the table, and I say what I normally say at the table. I say, hi, my name's Graham like the cracker, and uh, I got nothing. <laughs> no laugh like you did, nothing. Nothing, a smirk or a, that was cute, just a blank stare. So I said, this is going to be great. I said, hi, my name is Graham Mike the Cracker, and uh, I'm going to be your waiter tonight. Uh, the kitchen's about to close in like five minutes, and so what I need you to do is I need you to get your orders in so that we can, we can actually get you the food. And they just stare at me, blank stare, nothing. And so I look around at an empty restaurant, and uh, I look back at them, 
And the only thing I knew to do was just repeat myself. So I said, hi, my name's Graham like the cracker. And um, actually, the, the restaurant's about to close in, in five minutes. So I'd like to get your orders in so we can get you some food. And again, nothing, nothing. And next, I discover through very broken English that these two people are fresh off a flight from India at DFW Airport right next door. And uh, this is their first ever American restaurant experience, P.F. Chang's. <laughs> and their first ever waiter was Graham Cracker. So the man looks at me and asks me a question. He says, what does woman drink? And I go, excuse me? He goes, what alcohol does woman drink? And I go, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm 16, right? And he goes, uh, the only context of drinking around this time was like my grandma drinking Cosmos during Christmas. So I was like, I don't know, a Cosmo? And he goes, two. Okay, it's going to be that kind of night. Here we go. Uh, and then what he does, I'm not even kidding, he proceeds to point to half of the menu and orders one of everything. And for the next two hours, two hours, I run back and forth to the kitchen, just sweating, trying to serve this couple this entire time. And it dawned on me, do they tip in India? <laughs> I'm seriously thinking, is it customary to, to give gratuity in, in India? I actually don't even know if there's a word for gratuity in their language. And I begin to ask, is this going to be worth it? Is this, is this going to be worth it at all? All this literal waiting on them, is it going to be worth it? Is the level at which I'm waiting on them going to be worth it at the end of my shift? Will the end justify the means? Will all this attention and pursuit and sacrifice be worth it? Look, I think the same thing happens in your spiritual life. When you truly evaluate what Jesus asks of you, not to just visit a church on Sunday mornings, to maybe get to an, into a home group, but when he truly asks you to wait on him with your life, not just two hours, when you really evaluate that, is it going to be worth it? Our lives can often feel like an 85-year-long shift at work. And you don't get very far into a life of faith or really far into life at all without asking these questions. Is it going to be worth it? Will the end justify the means? Will all this attention, pursuit, and sacrifice to Jesus actually be worth it at the end of my days? And if we aren't careful, the promise of Christmas can be like a work shift that we endure rather than a journey that shows us he who's worth it all. And if we wait on our circumstances or the tips to come in our world, we might be missing out on the real promise. On this side of eternity, Christmas is still a promise, right? Yes, the Savior has come and with him peace on earth, but the story's not finished, right? R right? Okay, great. The shift is not over. You follow me? 
Yes, there's peace in our hearts, but you and I long for peace in the world and in our lives. And every Christmas is still just another shift until Jesus returns. Every December 25th marks another year until his return back here. And the question we must ask, is it worth all this waiting? Is it worth it? See, waiting on the Lord is much more than a cliche phrase that we throw around. It's, it's essential to the Bible and to who God is. Waiting on the Lord uh, is critical that we understand. And today, we're going to learn from, from some very wise men that in the waiting, in the long shift of life, Jesus is worth it. So if you would read along with me in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, let's read this story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for, it is, for so it is written by the prophet, this is Micah, so written or 700 years before this moment, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me words so that, you, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, so I know a lot of you think you might know a lot about the we three kings of Orient are, but you might know less than you actually think you do. First, let's take a look at the text, step away from the song for a second. They weren't actually kings. They were magi, magi, which is a side note, uh, in the entirety of the Bible, their magi aren't mentioned in a very positive light. So if you're in this room and you're a, a little bit skeptical of what I just read, uh, uh, you wouldn't just make up a story and use magi to affirm the deity of Christ. That just wouldn't happen because they're not really positive figures. You wouldn't use a non-Jewish Eastern person to affirm the, the deity of Christ here. Secondly, uh, there weren't three of them. There weren't three. Look at it. It just says wise men. We think it's three because there's three gifts that they give, but if we're going to follow that logic and you're in this room and tomorrow you go to your wife and you say, one husband, one gift, Merry Christmas, then you probably need to go to Walgreens and make something out of nothing really fast. The third thing that you might not see or might not understand is what's happening underneath this text. If you don't read it slowly and in context, you're going to miss it and that there is a long long journey in this story. It's a journey of waiting that extends far beyond this actual text, but it's really heavy in this story alone. And in this journey, these wise men display firstly 
that Jesus is worth our attention, right? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We see these wise men traveled from what's probably modern-day Baghdad to Jerusalem, 600 miles, five months, and this massive long stretch of waiting, a journey. Now watch what the text does here, okay? Ready? The wise men get a little lost, okay? They get a little lost. They go to Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem, right? Are you following me? Okay. Then the real miracle of the text occurs. Men actually stop and ask for directions. Nobody? Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. That was bad. Then, follow me here. They ask around. Then they, then they grabs the chief priests and scribes. Say chief priests. You got it. Tongue twister. The people who spend their entire lives... They spend their entire lives pouring over the scriptures, seeking God, who know the most knowledge and facts about the Messiah. And Herod asks them in a Jeopardy-like fashion, right? He trebeks them and says, what city is believed to be the birthplace of the Messiah? Ding, ding. What is Bethlehem? Yes, got it. They tell him Bethlehem. Now follow me here. What do the scribes and chief priests do? What do they do? What do they do? Nothing. They do nothing. They know the promise. They're experts on the Messiah. They've studied their entire lives for it, and they don't pack up. They don't start walking. They don't even look to the star, nothing. They miss it completely. The promised king has arrived, and they do absolutely nothing. Do you see the difference here? between a group of men who are displaying in their waiting a worth of Jesus Christ that leads them to pay attention, pay attention, and actually follow him aside from just knowing stuff about him. The problem here is not that they don't know the Bible. It's that they don't know Jesus, and they miss it. If you're a parent in this room, then you know uh, what happens before a baby comes, right? Well, sorry, that sounded weird. Uh, you know what happens as you, before the baby arrives, right? There's this whole journey of waiting for the arrival of the baby to come, right? And in that preparation, you read books and you learn to figure out how to, to do this thing when the, when the arrival comes, what you've been waiting for for 10 months. Um, and you might have read and studied and figured out all the right things to do. But then there's that day comes, when the arrival of your child actually is, is there. I don't know what your reaction was to the arrival of your child, but this, this was my reaction. Uh, thanks, Avery, for taking those photos. Um, I did get permission from Claire to share these, I think. Um, so imagine, imagine if you're in the room. There's another one, so we might as well get over. There it is. Okay, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mac, that was you, man. You shouldn't be laughing. I'm telling you. Um, okay, so now imagine if you're in the room. You can take it off because it's distracting. Um, imagine you're in the room, right? The day has come. The baby's coming. And you take all your baby books, Baby Wise and Spock, that weird one, and uh, all those books. You take all the books that have taught you how to be a parent. You read about skin to skin, right? When, when the baby comes, you, you place the baby on your skin. You place them close to be present with them because, because they're your treasure. They're your joy. 
And you go into that room and you sit in the corner and you keep reading the books on how to be a good parent. Right? Imagine if I got in the room, I sat in the corner and the baby's coming and he arrives and he's crying in the bassinet and that heater thing and I'm sitting there and he's crying and I'm just like, oh, skin to skin, that's really good. I should, you know, okay. Maybe. Hey, Matt, can you stop crying? Look, I'm trying to be a good dad here. Could you just, just take a chill pill and you just keep reading? This is the same thing. The person of Jesus is our treasure and knowledge of him can sometimes gloss us over, but especially when it comes to the stories that are wrote about Christmas that tend to just make us callous to the fact that the king of all kings, the king of the universe, came down in the flesh. We would miss it. We would miss it, the presence of being with our child if we, if we weren't traveling for something more than knowledge. And that's what the Magi displayed to us. They're not traveling for more knowledge about this person. A carrier pigeon could have done that, right? If they had that. I don't know if that's a thing. Right? They weren't looking for more knowledge. They were, be, they were trying to be together with their king. Look right at me. N knowing something is not the same thing as paying attention to it. Right? Are you following me there? Knowing something's not the same thing as paying attention to it, and he's worth paying attention to. We did this Polar Express train thing, right? It was like a, in Grapevine, and an elf got up in the middle of the train and said, hey guys, do you know what Christmas is all about? And the elf said, it's about joy and sharing love to one another and, and gifts and caring for each other and goodwill towards people as they love each other well. And I look at Mac and I go, that elf just lied to you. You laugh, I'm serious. The love and kindness and peace and all that stuff doesn't work without the treasure of Jesus Christ, right? And all the stretches and long waiting and the journey and the shift of this life, it's easy to become like the chief priests and scribes indifferent to the truth of what he's done and replace it with the Christmas spirit. Pay attention to the person. Jesus is not just some baby. Jesus is God with us. Some of us in this room, it's not beyond me. That this is kind of our one-stop shop thing, right? We Christmas, we come, we do the thing, and we leave. Some of us need to do some business with our preconceived notions of Christianity and religion and start looking towards a person that all this points to. May we witness here and now what makes him worth the waiting? What makes him worth it? What makes him worth it? Is that he paid attention to you. Do you see this? Jesus Christ, he paid attention to the broken and lost, you and me. He looked to the hurting and those who feel as if their life is just one great work shift waiting to end. He looked at you with unwavering compassion and died for you. He died for you. He didn't stop at the knowledge of your brokenness. Be like, man, that guy's really messed up. Holy smokes. No, he paid attention to you and was moved into compassion to do something about it. May you, may you have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ who drew his attention to you that you might know him. That you might know him because he's worth, he's worth your attention. <laughs> 
and he's worth your pursuit. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, why would you travel so far? Why, why go to all this trouble, put your entire life on hold to travel these months and give time and energy and gifts? They did it because they knew finding the king and knowing him was worth, was worth the pursuit. This is, a, this is an extreme and beautiful, this is a beautiful act of spiritual diligence. What trouble it cost them to travel, to see a person that they believed was God, that is God. The fatigue of an Eastern traveler is far greater than the exhausting drives that you and I have, right? The fatigue of an Eastern traveler is far greater than the exhausting drive from Fort Worth to Lubbock, right? And even modern day scholars who research ancient topography have discovered that Lubbock is far more uglier and barren than a, of a wasteland than any, in, in any ancient city, <laughs> right? Can I get an amen? Wreck them. Even modern day, sorry, <laughs> even modern day scholars, right? They look at it and say, okay, that, that's, this is real. Look, the journey that it would have taken them, the time it would have taken to occupy them was great. But they were seeking a person, king of the Jews, and they never rested till they saw him. These magi are showing us that waiting isn't passive. When you're in a season of waiting with the Lord, it's a very active thing. These people are looking to a star, stepping with their feet, believing in faith that God would put land underneath their feet. And in order to do something incredible like this journey, you have to believe that it's worth it, right? Why would you go to all the trouble? You know, a waiter at a restaurant doesn't actually wait, right? They don't actually wait. They're, they, they serve. And a truly good server at a restaurant values customers' worth higher than their own. Even when it takes forever, you wait on them for a long, even if you wait on them for a long time, their worth is higher. You, so you want to serve them. To be a true servant of Christ is to wait on him, is to wait on him. To pay attention and pursue his worth above all else, that he's your treasure and he deserves your attention, your time, your energy. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Because in the long stretches of waiting, whatever you're waiting on in this room, and the long stretches of, of waiting is where your faith is, is really discovered to be true. Three months ago, I met with a, a sweet woman here at Fort Worth Bible Church uh, for coffee at Fort Worth Coffee Co. And earlier this year, she had informed me um, that she was battling an, an aggressive form of cancer. And she knew, um, she knew well how painful um, the work shift of this life can really feel like, you know, uh, through, through testing and trials and, and, and like going through just hard, hard journeys. She really knew what it, that this journey was long and, and what, it what it really felt like. So I got to talk to her and catch up. And at this juncture um, where we were, when we were meeting, we didn't know what was going to happen because she was going to do some chemical trials and she was about to undergo. And about halfway through our talk, as she interrupted one of my questions and she looked at me with sincerity and she said, listen, Graham, either way, I win. I die, 
I win. I live, I win. Because he won. She expressed with such confidence that finding Jesus and knowing Jesus is the only pursuit worth everything in her life. Misty knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And on Monday, Misty went to be with the Lord, but she didn't lose anything because she gained him here and now. She knew what her treasure was now. Knowing Jesus was the only pursuit worth, worth, worth even her own life, her whole life. So simply put, what does your life say you're pursuing? What does your life say you're pursuing? What are you, what are you waiting on? Just like the wise men actively pursued their Savior, she pursued her Savior with her life, and she walked with him on earth to the end of her days. On the 29th, I get to go before her friends and her family and speak of how this woman's life was spent in pursuit of the only thing that truly satisfies her here and there. And she waited on him till the end. What will I say at yours? What am I gonna say at your funeral? And look, I know none of you are gonna answer that question in negative. You're gonna be like, family, my job, a legacy of wealth to pass down to my great-great-great-grandchildren will never, ever remember my name. Look, you have nothing that you won't ultimately lose. Nothing. Merry Christmas. <laughs> 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 Through all the directions and misdirections and redirections of life, Jesus is the only thing worth pursuing because he's the only thing that's eternal. The only thing you can truly know that's eternal, the souls of man, the word of God, and the king of the universe. What the wise men here remind us here is that, that even the good things go away and you have nothing that you won't ultimately lose. Ultimate satisfaction can come from one pursuit, one journey, and that's the one who pursued you. See why he's worth it. Rest in this now. Why is he worth it? Because he pursued you first. You didn't pursue God. He pursued you first. This is a $10 word. Take it home with you. Jesus condescended. He condescended. He voluntarily entered into human form, joined the human experience, felt the burden of waiting and experienced our suffering and the shift that happens all the time. And even in death, he journeyed to the cross for you and for me. Simply put, you didn't pursue God. He pursued you. And this is what makes him worth it. He's worth it because he came for you. This is why he's worth your worship. Going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What is worship? Worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things, that showing him and displaying him with your life that he is worth it. It's an expression of extreme value. Take a look at what they did. I mean, really think about this. Try to imagine this. They fell down and worshiped Jesus. At this juncture, 
Jesus would probably be about two years old because he says they went and saw him in a house, right? So about two years old. I'm not sure if any of you have met any two-year-olds, but I haven't met any two-year-olds that make me want to fall down to the ground and worship, right? <laughs> Plus, could you imagine how strange that would look to every single person in the room? Imagine just person walking by. You know, kind of look by a room and be like, well, interesting. Imagine how, how low you would have to bow to get beneath a two-year-old. That simple action is an incredible demonstration of faith and a hallmark of faith in this entire Bible. Don't miss this. Look at these wise men. Think of their context. They don't know, right? They, don't, they never saw a miracle of Jesus. They, they never saw a, a teaching of his to persuade him. No signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They just saw a, a baby, an infant, helpless and weak, that needs his mother's care just like any of us. And when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine savior of the world. They fell down and worshiped him and gave him their treasures. But they didn't just fall down and gave him the treasures. They rejoiced exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly. What kind of hype that had to have been for a two-year-old. Amazing. They rejoice. They fall down and humble themselves. And then they give extravagantly. They knew the person they were waiting on was their true treasure. So any of their treasures really is just, let's give it all to him. This is where it gets difficult. And when you see that he's asking you to bow down all and give your entire life, all of it, not Sunday mornings. He's asking to, for you to give him everything, everything. And they knew this to be true. That's why they rejoiced exceedingly, fell down and humbled themselves, and then gave extravagantly. You realize a two-year-old can't give you anything, right? It's not like he gave him something and the baby said, here's something back. No, they knew he was a savior and that it was worth it all. So they're not looking for something back. They knew who he was already and what he was going to do. Faith is a gift. It is a gift that moves us to worship. And I know many people, I've met with so many people who've left this faith, who the journey has become too arduous for, and they say, well, I'm not really getting anything out of it for me. Look to these wise men who gave everything and got nothing back. They actually left more empty-handed than, than they arrived. They gave everything because he's worth everything. I don't know a single person that understands the pursuit of Jesus well, who hasn't undergone pressure in their lives. You know, when you pressurize coal, what do you get? Guys, we're at an elementary school. You got this, right? What do you get when you pressurize coal? Diamonds. What is that worth? What's a, what's a refined faith and prayer life worth more than diamonds? But they weren't just journeying to a baby king. They were journeying to Christ, the everlasting Lord, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus, 
the God who focused his attention on you, who pursued you, and who sacrificed his life for you. As the nails drove into his wrists, he focused his attention on you in pursuit of you to sacrifice for you. Jesus is the ultimate server, right? Late that night at uh, P.F. Chang's, I finished up my shift after a long night of waiting and dishes and all the stuff, and I went to the table after the bar closed, and I got my ticket back, and the couple had given me $200. It was the biggest tip of my life. It was huge. Uh, for a 16-year-old, I blew it in like five minutes. Um, but listen, don't apply this, because this is where the illustration can break down. The treasure we receive for our waiting is that we get to be with God. He is the treasure. Not our tips increasing or our circumstances getting better. Right? When you accept Christ, it's not rainbows and butterflies now. No, you get him. And that's worth it all. That's worth it all. You get him who pursued you, who paid attention to you and sacrificed for you. You get the greatest server of all time. Our treasure, you know, isn't monetary. It's not circumstantial. Because at the end of our days, our treasure that we're linked to forever is him, is him who died for us. So, tomorrow, tomorrow, how will your pursuit and attention and sacrifice look towards him? I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. This is going to be so counterintuitive, but I, I really want you to promise me you do this. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, and you head downstairs and your kids are running or whatever, you just walk down to the tree, will you do me a huge favor? I want you to get downstairs and I want you to stop. Stop. And I want you to turn your backs to the Christmas tree and all the gifts and all the stuff of Christmas. And I want you to, for five to 10 minutes, I just want you to focus on your real treasure. It's not under the tree. It's not the tree. It's not an elf lying to you on a train. It's Jesus Christ. He is the treasure and he's worth it all. Do me that favor, will you? Can you do me that? I'm asking you a question. Thank you. Thank you. Turn your backs to what glosses us over. Take a page out of the book of the Magi and pursue something that's everlasting, eternal, and is the greatest treasure that you could possibly, possibly encounter. He's worth it all. Let me pray for you guys. God, thank you for sending your son to show us how great you are. <laughs> that you would focus your attention on us and our sin. While we were sinning, you sent your son to die for us. That you would keenly focus your attention on us is beyond me. But not only that, that you would pursue us, that you would condescend, send your son to die for us and focus all of your powers on inflicting all the joy and honor and fulfillment and happiness upon us because our death is dead and our sin is gone is beyond me. And that you, Lord, would sacrifice your precious son May we look upon that. May that be our star tomorrow. 
and with attention, pursuit, and sacrifice for you, show, show ourselves and the rest of the world that you truly are worth it. You're worth it. Amen.